Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Well, Operation Shoebox, that's uh, Billy Graham's son. And uh, it, it's one of those things we, we like to be involved in. It. Jesus said, let the children come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he also spoke to the the people and separating the sheep and the goats. And he talks about, do we care about people? It's, it wasn't about our religious uh, position so much as did it move our life to an action that showed the character of Christ. So the next few weeks, I want to look at, uh, at Jesus personally, his life, his ministry, uh, the things surrounding the journey, how we responded. Uh, and there's a basis for this in Scripture. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's not on your notes yet, Ben, don't worry. It's, uh, I got that while I was singing. Um, it says, verse 18, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into that same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of, God, of the Lord. And Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we need to make sure that we look at Jesus. So for the next few weeks, I want us to set our focus at Jesus, looking under Jesus. What was he like? What did he live like? How did, what was the journey surrounding him? Uh, the character, the training, the, the actions, and what did that produce? Um, and so as we start, we're looking at the ministry life of Jesus firstly, and uh, we need to understand he was called rabbi and that was a title that wasn't really a formal title until around the late 1st, early 2nd century. So it wasn't like a job position you got. Uh, it became that as people journeyed, they became more formalised in the structure. You were just recognised as a teacher of the law with authority, so called rabbi um, in, in that journey. So that would have entailed, firstly, 18 years of training. After he'd turned 12... To his 13th birthday, called, it's, we, we, we get it wrong. Bar Mitzvah is what naturally happens to a Jewish boy when he turns 13. It's not he has one, he is one. And so he's, he's journeyed here. So Jesus now spends, after, after confounding the religious leaders, amazing them with his questions at this age of 12, 13, he spends another 17 or 18 years in intense training for his ministry life. And I think there's something we need to understand in that journey for ourselves. Here we have a Jewish boy who became a man, olive or dark-skinned, not white, uh, who, who impacted the world. And, and it's funny how it's primarily white people who then paint white pictures of Jesus, a white Jesus. And, and no, he was olive or dark skin, and, but he impacted the world. And would we not think we would want to adopt someone of such national significance that impacted the world? You know, we, we thought people were outing Alan Bond when, when we won the America's Cup off the Americas. Yes, you know, how good was that? We all celebrate that. We all celebrate our national heroes, but sadly... Israel doesn't celebrate this man. Uh, and for them, they don't even recognise that he was rabbinical. Uh, they don't uh, see him as such. But we do. Uh, how would we identify the reality of that? And I think we, we need to look at his ministry life. And, he be, and I want to begin with the authority that backed up his ministry. How that was evidenced in his life. 
And it says in Luke 4, Luke 4.32, the people were listening to him preaching and they respond. They were astonished at his teaching for his word was with authority. So just the way he spoke carried authority. I don't know if you've listened to any, any sort of TED talks or whatever, things like that, but I've listened to a number of different things and Jordan Peterson speaks, and I don't agree with everything, but he speaks like you listen and you think, this guy's got authority. And so Jesus speaks with authority. Such was his authority that he actually made statements about it that was so powerful. In Matthew 5, Jesus makes this statement we hear a lot of, and I want to read it from verse 21 to 29. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of Gehenna, hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, go your way, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with the adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. I say to you, will no means escape or get out of there till you've paid the last penny. And he says it again. You have heard it said... To those by, that it was said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say that to, whoever looks a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in her heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Obviously, that's not literal. That's a metaphor. Don't pull your eye out. Don't cut your hand off. But the comparison is you want to make eternal life. And it's really important that you make eternal life. But, but Jesus often said, you know, it has been said, the old prophets, the old rabbinical teachings, the old teachers of the law say this, but I say. So Jesus' life reinterpreted the scriptures that were existent at that point of time. He directed his hearers to listen to what he was saying above what others were saying. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day took their authority from those past teachers. And it's really important that we we understand when they spoke, they spoke, this is what such and such a teacher teaches and I'm teaching what he taught. But Jesus is saying, I'm not. I'm teaching something different. I'm teaching you to see it. And it's such a such a, a relevant point. Then even Paul, when, when he's he, he's been been dragged out and the and the, the uh, Roman soldiers have got him escaping from the temple where the Jews wanted to kill him, and the Roman soldier gets uh, they get him out. Paul then has a chance to speak, and he starts off his speak by claiming, "I've been trained under under Gamaliel." In Acts 5, he says this, And Gamaliel was held in such high honour as a great teacher that the people then stopped their writing and listened. That's a pretty powerful claim when you say, I'm talking because I was trained by so-and-so. Everyone goes, oh, let's listen. Let's listen. 
We're angry right now at him, but let's listen because of the authority that he's speaking from. But Paul then contradicts the Jewish type of teaching and preaches Jesus and again the crowd erupts. It's really important that we understand that. I want to jump quickly at at an account we've we've listened to and I've spoken on a number of times, but I want to see it slightly differently. So in John 8, we find it. uh, Jesus uh, comes from the Mount of Olives and goes into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat there and taught them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now we've, we've looked at that situation before uh, and they bring Jesus in, this woman into Jesus uh, and Jesus deals with them and, and asks her the question, where are the accusers? And, and she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And, and you've heard me identify the progress of freedom for this woman and I believe the progress of freedom for all of us is firstly that God wants to get rid of the accusers He wants us to know that we're not condemned and in the power of being free from condemnation and free from accusers, we can then go and live with a brand new start. And we need to understand that. And that's so contrary to the religious leaders. They wanted to judge you first and then they wanted you to change your behaviour and then if your behaviour changed, then they wouldn't condemn you and then they would say, live free. And Jesus turned that whole thing pretty much upside down and we knew that because it's really scary to think about this, but the way of the religious leaders and sadly much of the church is that we judge people. And that is actually the way of Satan because the Bible says he is the accuser of the brethren. We we ought to firstly get rid of the accusations, get rid of the condemnation and give people an opportunity to know forgiveness and a brand new start and that their life then evidences they have been forgiven. See, the works of repentance come after forgiveness. We want it the other way around and that's not how Jesus did it. Now, that's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to focus on is this. This did not happen in a private area. This is in public. Let let me read it to you again, the first part of the verse. It says, Jesus came uh, came down from the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him. So this is in the middle of Jesus teaching a multitude of people in the temple. In the middle of that, the religious leaders drag this woman in to publicly humiliate her and trap Jesus in a public sense so they could then condemn him. This is not something hidden away where, where Jesus is just 12. There's just the religious leaders and her and Jesus. This is in the middle of a crowd. I don't know if, you, if we realise that. Well, often we think it's off somewhere else nice and quiet. No, it's not. It's in the middle of everyone. People are watching this go on. And whether the Pharisees left the temple or just left the circle of accusers. 
Maybe they just sort of ming- drop the stone and mingle back into the crowd a little bit. You know what it's like. You mingle back into the crowd. And maybe what happened is they all mingle back into the crowd and when the woman looks up, she sees the crowd but not the accusers. She's still in a fellowship structure but doesn't see the accusers. And in the middle of that, Jesus takes away her humiliation. Listen to the next verse. Then Jesus spoke to them again. (laughs) How... How obvious is it now? This is in the middle of a crowd. And so this woman is, you're free. No one here accusing you. I'm not. You're free. Now, I don't know how far she went, but maybe she stayed. Probably the outer court of the temple. Maybe she stayed to hear what Jesus was going to continue to say. Maybe what he had done so contradicted the the religious leaders, had such power and authority, she now wants to listen to what he says. And then he says this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Can, Can you just imagine this woman hearing these words? I have already experienced the freedom that comes when he speaks with authority and now he's telling me he's the light of the world and I don't have to walk in darkness anymore. And then it goes, the Pharisees, now I wonder if there's still some of the same ones, therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Now it's your self-promoting. Therefore your witness is not true. So they're challenged now his authority to say what he does, even though he has acted in authority. They're challenging his authority. And Jesus says to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. You don't know where I've come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment will be true. And I'm not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. And it's written in your law that the testimony of two or two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So Jesus is stating his authority. Now, interesting, the religious leaders have no idea where Jesus has come from and no idea where Jesus is going. Um, Some people think there's a passage in, I think it's in John 8, yeah, in John 8 where they say to Jesus, you know, we're not illegitimate. And some people assume out of that context that they're challenging Jesus' birth. They don't have a clue. Jesus says, you don't know where I've come from, you don't know where I'm going. If we, if we look at that verse in John 8, in, uh, it says, I can't remember the verses, I didn't write it down. It says, Jesus said to them, you are doing your father's work. And they said, our ancestry is not in question. In other words, they're not challenging Jesus. He's challenging them as to whether they really are by spirit and nature, the children of Abraham. 
I know your natural ancestry, but you don't carry the heart or spirit of Abraham. In the CEV, it says this, you're doing exactly what your father does. And they go, don't accuse us of having someone else as a father. We have just one father, he's God. That's scary. They don't have a clue. Now, often we think the religious leaders remember Jesus' birth. They don't have a clue, honestly. Most times they don't know. Jesus, as far as they're aware, all the children under two in Bethlehem were killed. It's only that God, by an angel, warned Joseph and Mary to go to Egypt and they come back and they settle in Nazareth, which is in Galilee, which is not Bethlehem. And they assume this. Listen to this in John 7, and verse 40. Listen to these words. Some people said, this is certainly a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. But others said, surely the Christ is not going to come out of Galilee, is he? Does the scripture not say that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? See, the religious leaders we often think knew. They Generally, I don't find any scriptures that said they really knew about his birth structure. There's not a lot there until we get to the Gospels that talk about his, the way he was born and conceived by God and Mary. They, they, were, they think this guy's a Nazarene. He can't be the Messiah. They don't know that Joseph isn't his natural father. As far as I'm aware when I read scriptures. Anyway, back to the point. (laughs) Jesus' authority. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two is true. Jesus said, I am one who bears witness and the Father who sent me. By these two witnesses, which is a point of the law, it's their proclaiming, Jesus establishes his authority. Not only does he do that, he, he then tells parables mostly. He, he uses parables to paint pictures so people get a message. You know, a picture's worth a thousand words. If someone can tap into your imagination with the words they, they tell you. You know, I, I hope, younger people, I hope you read books. Because movies, while they are great, they actually limit your imagination to what's happening on the screen Whereas a book lets your imagination go much further than that. And, and God used, Jesus used parables to tap into people's imagination in the life that they lived. He painted pictures they were, they were understanding, painted pictures that were normal to them. And he taught in these images, everyday life images. And, and most of them had concealed truth and revealed truth involved. And people would be captivated by stories like, like the prodigal son, amazing story. And it would have upsetted religion because the story of the prodigal son has a father running to show mercy to his rebellious but repentant son. Now, the father has no idea that the son's repentant. All the father sees is his coming home. I don't hear the father say to the son, well, you've got to do this, this and this for me to forgive you. But religion and the, the, of the day would have said the father waits on the door, on the, on the porch. And when the son gets there, he's got to grovel up the steps and he's got to be humble and he's got to have apologies. He's got to do penance. He's got to have some kind of sacrifice, turtle doves and lambs or whatever to be right with God and with his dad. But this father girds up his loins, shameful thing. 
In those days to do that would have been a shame. So the father takes on the shame and runs, another shame point, to his son to welcome him home. Can you imagine how the normal people felt? If Jesus is painting a picture of the heartbeat of God, the people go, wow, the picture we've had of God is nothing like that. But you're showing us a picture and it's an amazing, we'll, we'll touch that then a bit further. But, but I want to look at the other side, which is how do the religious people react when really this challenges leaders to walk humbly? It challenges leaders to be gracious and merciful. It challenges people to not be condemning, but leaders especially, but to restore people. The runaway son, the rich fool. Challenges religious people, the wicked vine dressers. Let's read this one in Mark 12. Then he began to speak to them, verse 1, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers, went into a far country. Now at harvest or vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers. He might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard. You know, some of the payment for leasing from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again. Verse 5, and again sent another. They killed him and many others, beating some and killing some. And therefore, he's still having one son, his beloved. He also sent him to the last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus didn't wait for them to answer because he knew they probably wouldn't. He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvellous in our eyes. Next verse. This tells you how the religious leaders interpreted what he had just said. And they sought to lay hands on him. But feared the multitude, for they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. Jesus tells a story in a parable about a landowner renting out his land with a vineyard in it and the vineyard owners killing his son. The only way they could have interpreted that to be so angry is that God had given the religious leaders uh, the, the, the tenure, the stewardship, not ownership, which is about finances, Josh, the stewardship of the land, but they mistreated his son. And they're thinking they're gonna, they want to kill Jesus. Now they realise that he's claiming to be God's son and God has only just employed them as leases to look after it and they're going to kill him. They've killed the prophets, they've killed the others and now they're killing, going to kill his son and they knew. See, Jesus' parables were both encouraging and confronting. They were challenging in every area. So not only did he have authority, but he challenged when he spoke. He, he then on top of that, we find the miracles involved in his ministry that confirmed the authority that he had. It, it, it's this continuing evidence of who he is. Most of the miracles were generally acts of healing 
an expression of the compassionate heart of God. Jesus heals a blind man, born blind. And the religious leaders now want to know what happened. And they're challenging the blind man. What happened to you? They call his parents. What happened to you? They ask him again, tell us again what happened. And, and obviously he's pretty blunt. What? You've heard me tell it to you. My parents have told you. And now you want to hear it again. Do you want to become his disciples too? You can imagine how they're arcing up already. They already don't like Jesus. Chance of them becoming his disciples. We don't even recognize he's a rabbi. This is the blind man. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners. That would be except when they ask God to forgive them. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Even the blind man understood that the authority that Jesus had confirmed by the miracles proves he's from God. It clearly identified that Jesus clearly was from God and it got this blind man kicked out of church. He got kicked out of church because he testified that the person who prayed for him and he got his sight back was from God. And then he get kicked out of church. How tragic is it if you got healed in church that you would get kicked out because you said Jesus healed you? That's what happens to this guy. Jesus says in John 5.36, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Things that Jesus did. I mean, raising the dead, that's a pretty big miracle. I mean, it's not, it, doesn't, it still happens today. I heard of, a, I think it was an Indonesian pastor who was being interviewed on an American program because he had seen someone raised from the dead and they wanted to know all about it. And he goes, well, why are you asking me? There are other guys who've raised tens and twenties from the dead. You know, I know Max Wiltshire works with indigenous people. They've had people raised from the dead in Halls Creek, been in the cold room for four days and they're raised from the dead. Now, it still happens today. Jesus is still moving. Uh, so raising dead is pretty big. Calming a storm, uh, uh, that, that's pretty big. You know, uh, they go way beyond the normal just being healed. They, they go just this sort of like not just supernatural, mega supernatural. But every one of those were moved by something as a general rule. Almost every miracle which confirms his authority was moved by something else, his compassion. His compassion not only confirmed his authority, but it attracted people. See, the Bible says there's nothing in the natural that makes Jesus attractive. He looked just like every other average Jewish man. There's something about his life that made him attractive. We've already looked at the woman caught in adultery. I wonder how powerful that would have been, but not only to her. What about all the onlookers? Think about this, all the onlookers who were in the temple that day looking at this woman, they're expecting this woman to be stoned to death. That's the normal routine of life. And every one of them in the crowd, 
probably knows there's something in their background that might qualify, qualify them for the same treatment. And they're living in fear of the religious leaders. And here Jesus has demonstrated publicly compassion. Can, can you hear the quiet, still, inner corporate sigh of relief? There's hope for me. Maybe God doesn't condemn me. Maybe God's nicer than we think. If God's anything like this Jesus, maybe, maybe I can find forgiveness. Maybe I can find no condemnation. Maybe I can be free from guilt and shame. Maybe I can have a brand new start. Jesus challenges people, especially religious leaders. Listen, listen to Paul speak in Romans 2, verses 3 to 5. Do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Can I, I'm going to say again, I've touched this before, but I'll touch it again. When it's the judgment of God, God is just making a call on this is right, this is wrong, this is a consequence you receive, this is a consequence you get. You have, you have the fruit of the Spirit and you have the works of righteousness, uh, or the works of the flesh. And so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily God storing up punishment. In fact, it's clearly not God storing up punishment. It's people storing up their own wrath, the consequences. See, God is good, forbearing, long-suffering, allowing his goodness to draw people to repentance. That's all in that passage. And this was the opposite, again, of the religious leaders who were so quick to judge and condemn. We saw that in the woman caught in adultery. And see, when we judge others, it actually reveals a problem in our own hearts. It reveals something in our heart. It reveals the way we live. It also reveals the way we condemn ourselves. And that's not God's heart. Self-condemnation is one of the worst condemnations you can face. Because it's very hard for anyone to change your mind about your self-condemnation. You need an encounter with God to know what he's like and what he calls us to. It actually reveals, when we judge, it reveals a problem. It shows that we're thinking like the wicked people or the wicked one. So Christ's deep compassion for people was founded in his relationship with the Heavenly Father It's in this knowing the Father's heart toward humanity that moved him. Understanding that we're created in God's image, but sin has damaged that image and that we are fallen and we live in a fallen world. We're prisoners of sin and we live in a world of sin. And because of this, Christ showed compassion, care and concern for individuals. This can be seen in almost every encounter he has with people who are sick, bereaved or demon-possessed. And even with Nicodemus who asks him and and Jesus says, you must be born again. He said, Nicodemus, don't you understand? The multitudes were quick to see the high value that Jesus placed on individuals. 
the high value he placed on humanity and his compassion toward them and his dislike of judgmental religious people. And Jesus wanted this compassionate attitude of faith to be multiplied through his disciples and therefore through every believer. I get amazed at what he's like. Like the musicians and singers to come. My last point here is Jesus lived in this context. We just looked at, he wanted it to continue. He knew he was going away and he sent the Holy Spirit to be in us, not just with us, but in us. So in the beginning, and in the second year roughly of his public ministry, Jesus spent time with the 12. He took time to train them. He tried to impart to them the, the compassionate life. He wanted them to catch his heart. Not just what he did, not just the theology, but catch his heart because the heart would then understand the theology and how it applies to life. And he chose these people and he had a great expectation upon them and they understood Listen, they understood that being called to follow Jesus was a costly calling. They understood it would take time, it would take energy, it would take diligence to seek him, to learn of him, to know him. As we read right at the beginning, looking unto Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, beholding him and letting that glory change us. It's the heart of God. And they knew Jesus would have had that 18 years of in-depth training. And they knew they needed to be committed to that level of personal discipline in their life. And they learned from his example. They learned from private instruction. And he trained them and others. And sent them out to do his work. In Matthew 10 it says this, verse 25. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub or the devil, how much more will they call those of his household? Paul continues that thought that Jesus quotes in 2 Timothy. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, rightly divide the scriptures, to read them through the lens of Jesus. What did he do with them? He changed the religiosity of it and made it relational. He changed the condemnation and made it compassion. He didn't take away sin. He changed it, changed our view of it so we could set people free from sin, not judge them for their sin and punish them. Peter continues and he says in 2 Peter 1 verses 1 and 5, just like you, an apostle of Christ, he says, he says everyone who's obtained this faith, give diligence, all diligence and add to your faith. Church, we never stop and should never stop growing in the compassion of God, we should never stop putting aside condemnation of others and religiosity and judging people. We should be showing them there's a better way to live that is so attractive, like the compassion of Christ that people were drawn to. The 12 didn't fully understand it, but that training was vitally important when the Holy Spirit came. It's what the church was founded on. And sadly, the Western church in many ways has made it religious and pharisaical. We want to get back to the roots of the foundation of compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness and freedom and a brand new start for people. We will face challenges, but how we handle them develops our life. It gets the revelation from the head to the heart that I want to be more like Jesus. 
Is that going to create controversy? Yeah, you preach grace and mercy and religious people get upset, just like in Jesus' day. You can't do that. I just did. I just brought forgiveness. I just brought freedom. I just brought grace and mercy to that person. And there will be appropriate controversy when we are trained and equipped. It's not always going to be peaceful. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. Jesus' parables were controversial. They created problems. They challenged people to a better life and confronted religiosity and condemnation. Not unnecessarily so. Didn't he? he didn't go out of his way to make problems, but he didn't avoid them if necessary. So before you jump into a fight, make sure it's worth it and make sure you do it with compassion. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you falsely for my sake. Church, make sure it's not true what they say. Make sure it's false. Live in such a way that any accusation, unless it's like you're too kind, you're too merciful, you're too gracious. If I stand before God and I get accused by God of being too nice, that'll be fine. I don't want to be accused of being a judgmental, critical, religious goat. Oh, by the way, church, I did meet with angels the other day. We're now supporting them to reach the poor and hurting in our community. I met with a young lady who and her mother are doing it and she actually has a Christian heritage. Doesn't go to church. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they, the prophets. Church, we are. Jesus said this, you're the light of the world now. Jesus is in you and he's ignited a light by his spirit in our hearts we are the people that now need to show Jesus and what God is like by the way we live Jesus in our world. You are the light of the world, Jesus said in Matthew 5:14. Let your light so shine. What light? The light of compassion. I would challenge us all over the coming weeks, consider the teaching of Matthew 5, 1 to 12 in the Beatitudes. Read them. Think about them. Talk to one another about them. In what ways do they overturn the world's value system? And what do I need to change to to line up with them? How can we as Christians best put into practice the attitude Jesus showed that sets people free and doesn't condemn, that gets rid of accusers and gives people the challenge in power to go and sin no more? And how can this be done in your life and mine, individually, wherever we go? You know, the true Christian can't avoid controversy. But I pray, church, I pray that the controversy that we create is that people start to realise God is good, and God is kind, and God is gracious, He's merciful, He's slow to anger. He sets captives free. He heals brokenhearted. He delivers the oppressed and he brings good news to the poor. And that is what we are called to do too. Now today, maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're watching online and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. I'm sorry if people are giving you a bad picture of Jesus. I'm sorry if church and religion has given you a bad picture of Jesus. But if you look at the Bible, I pray our church gets more and more like that. 
more and more like Jesus, that we can really be accused of being like Christ, little Christians. Wherever we go, people are moved. Religiosity is challenged and confronted, but hurting, broken people hear good news and are set free. If you haven't received Christ, I would challenge you today to make that decision. You say, Jesus, if this is the Jesus that the Bible teaches, and it is, then I want to follow you. I want to change my world for good. I know it's going to create controversy, but I'm not going to back away because your goodness, your kindness needs to be shown to this world. Let's pray. Father, for those people who are wanting to accept Christ or considering the way they've been living, I pray that your Holy Spirit would strengthen them, draw them closer to you, let them know that you're not a God who accuses and you're not a God who condemns. You're a God who's already forgiven. We just have to receive it. And so for those people today, I pray they would receive the forgiveness of God by acknowledging it, saying, God, I'm sorry for living without you, for living sinfully. That just means living without Him as Lord. And I receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour of my life. Let me live for you. Let me live like you. And let me show the world the goodness of God. And let me speak with authority because I am compassionate, because I've learned to be gracious, because I've walked in mercy, because I've freed people from condemnation, I've protected them from the accusers, and I've empowered them to go and sin no more. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Church. Let's let the music play a little bit. Can I encourage you? The altar is going to be open, but you're welcome to go. But are we living like Christ in our world? God bless you. Good morning.